Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here, and this is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about law that you need to know, constitutional law, new cases from the various courts of appeals, uh, statutes, changes from the General Assembly, and so on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, everybody, for uh, the good comments and suggestions. I'm glad that you guys are enjoying the podcast. This is for those of you out there who want to do the right thing, who want to find ways always to get better, to improve, to learn the law so that you can strengthen and serve your communities. Uh, Certainly, there's no shortage of people who are happy to complain about the police, but not a lot of people out there who know, one, what you do, and two, uh, what the law really is and how to learn it. So that's what we're trying to do here is examine what the law actually is uh, and how can you learn it to do better. Today's episode, we're going to focus on some of the new proposed statutes that are up in the General Assembly. We've seen a lot of bills um, and the General Assembly moves really fast. I mean, we are in it, you know, last week, we didn't really know what any of the bills were. And already, bills have been proposed. Um, they looked at them for a couple of hours and already have uh, passed some of them through subcommittees and are, are heading through. So it's important, I think, as fast as this is going and as little public comment as there is, as little opportunity is to be heard that you know what's making its way through the General Assembly um, so that you can expect what's you know potentially going to come through. Um, but also, if you want to have your voice heard, what the issues are. Today, we're going to focus on a couple of different statutes that are proposed. One of them is the return of the uh, proposal to, quote unquote, eliminate qualified immunity, but to create a new cause of action in Virginia that you could bring against law enforcement officers that would uh, not have any kind of legal protection for officers who are following what the stated law is. So if you know if you want to be able to sue an officer uh, for enact for you know uh, for enforcing a statute as written um, because you think the statute's unconstitutional, this will let you do that. If you want to uh, bring a lawsuit against a law enforcement officer who's acting under an established case because you think the case was wrongly decided, um, the officer's following what the law is, but you want to be able to successfully sue them, this would let you do that. Um, there is also a statute that's very quickly making its way through requiring law enforcement officers to render aid and also report wrongdoing. Um, that's really interesting because it actually has some really interesting Garrity implications that I don't know that the sponsor really understands. The sponsor is not a lawyer, so we'll talk about that. Um, there is a proposal on FOIA that is very um, sweeping and would make a huge difference to FOIA that I think you need to know about. And then if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the proposal to um, make significant changes to the law enforcement assault and law enforcement officer statute. But I do want to talk about the proposal that's back again uh, for civil ac- action for deprivation of rights. This was a bill that had come up in this special session. Um, it had died and come back and died and come back. And in fact, you know, the House had voted against it a couple of times and then, but it kept being reproposed and brought back to the floor over and over again. And ultimately, in the last moment died in the Senate after having passed the House. It's here again in the main session and it's carried by Delegate Bourne. It is House Bill 2045. And this version of the bill is actually a little bit more, uh, there, there are more provisions to it than there were even in the last special session. One of the provisions that was added, and, and just so you know, this is essentially, again, allowing somebody to bring a lawsuit in Virginia, um, in Virginia court, not in federal court, uh, for any deprivation of rights, privileges, or immunities in the Constitution or its laws or laws of Virginia. There would be no limit upon damages. So right now in Virginia, there's a limit on punitive damages of a quarter million dollars for any lawsuit. So if you sue a teacher or a, you know, 
owner of a copy shop or whatever, a doctor, whatever, punitive damages are limited to $250,000, law enforcement officers would be the one group that wouldn't have a limit on punitive damages. Also, you couldn't cover attorney's fees. So even if the uh, violation of the person's rights was pretty de minimis, it was a traffic stop, for example, uh, the attorney could recover their attorney's fees. And that can be obviously pretty significant. Um, There was a lawsuit in Virginia, in Charlottesville a few years ago, um, by homeless individuals who were suing about a restriction on their ability to uh, ask for money on the sidewalk. The damages, I think, were like you know a few hundred dollars, maybe two thousand or dollars at most. But the attorneys' fees were one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. So you can see attorneys, you know, ha- may have a motivation to bring these lawsuits. One of the things that uh, this bill does that's a little different is. It provides that uh, your locality has to indemnify you. In other words, if you are sued and a successful judgment is issued against you, under this proposal, your locality would have to pay the damages only, though, if you acted on good faith and reasonable belief that your action uh, or failure to act was lawful. If it wasn't based on good faith and reasonable belief that your action or failure to act was lawful, then you would be personally liable for up to $25,000 of the judgment um, or up to 5% of the judgment, whichever is less. So if the judgment were, you know, a million dollars, you'd be liable for up to $25,000. If the judgment was for $10,000, then you'd be liable for only $500. But it's notable in this proposal then that uh, it specifically contemplates that law enforcement officers would be held potentially liable for their actions, even if they were acting on good faith. For example, they're relying on a lawfully issued search warrant. They're relying on a statute as printed. They're relying on an established case from the Court of Appeals or U.S. Supreme Court. And it would it, it contemplates that officers can be found to be liable by a jury or by a judge, even if they have a reasonable belief that their action or their failure to act was lawful. So this bill specifically contemplates and and pretty much states in the text that it's not a defense to a lawsuit that you're acting in good faith. It's not a defense to a lawsuit that you're acting on reasonable belief that your action or your failure to act is lawful. Uh, And so therefore you could be acting you know again uh, under a statute uh, California for example recently uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals found that its ban on high capacity magazines in the, the ban on high capacity magazines in California was unlawful it was passed by the statute but it was a violation in the view of the courts of the Second Amendment rights of individuals in California so any law enforcement officer who is enforcing that statute you know here in Virginia, they would be personally liable for the deprivation of that right, privilege, or immunity under the Constitution to any police department or police officer or sheriff who had enforced that statute. Uh, The only protection the law enforcement officer or the sheriff would have would be if the plaintiff recovered, you know, $100,000 or $10,000 or whatever, um, the officer wouldn't be personally liable for any amount that would have to be paid for by the locality. So because the officer in that instance would uh, certainly have acted good on good faith or reasonable belief that their action was lawful. So there would be liability, but it wouldn't, in order to the officer, the locality would have to pay that, uh, those damages. So that bill, uh, right now, the status of it is, it is, uh, it is before the um, House committee, it's been referred to the Committee for Courts of Justice in the House. It hasn't made it to the Senate yet, and the Senate doesn't have its own version of this bill yet. 
Um, there may be a version of this bill coming out in the Senate, but from what I've seen and heard, it's not going to be anywhere near as um, as sweeping or as big of a change if it does start in the Senate. Now, that doesn't mean the Senate won't eventually, if this may, passes the House again as it did last year, that doesn't mean the House won't take it up. I mean, the Senate won't take it up and take it seriously. Um, but uh, but that's the status of that of that bill right now. Another interesting bill is uh, Delegate Levine's bill, House Bill 1948, which provides a duty to render aid for law enforcement officers and also a duty to report wrongdoing by officers. This bill has two parts, and I want to talk about them because they're somewhat different, and they both provide a new obligation for law enforcement officers. So the first part of the bill uh, provides a duty to render aid for life-threatening conditions for officers who are on duty. And what this says is that if you're on duty and you see when you witness another person suffering from either a serious bodily injury or a life-threatening condition, you're legally required to render aid as the circumstances objectively permit to that person. And if you fail to do so, you, be, you shall be subject to disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer of the officer. So that's really all that it says, and it doesn't define any of these terms. So if you're on duty and you're a law enforcement officer and you're at the hospital and you witness somebody who's got you know cancer, which is uh, a life-threatening condition, this statute says that you are required to render aid to that person. Um, if you see somebody whose legs are broken, you're on duty, you're driving on the street and they are trying to get up a set of stairs, this, if that's a serious bodily injury, which I think it is, uh, you would have to stop your vehicle. You'd be legally required to stop your vehicle, get out of your car, go over and help that person um, get up the stairs, at least as far as the way the statute appears. You have to render aid to a person who's got seriously serious bodily injury. And if you don't, you shall be subject to disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer. It does only apply if you're on duty. Um, it doesn't indicate, it just says witnesses, though. It's not really clear about in what way you witness it. If you were watching television, would that be witnessed? If you see it on YouTube, I, you know, again, the statute doesn't really have any definition, so it's not really clear. The second portion of this, though, is a little more complicated. Uh, the consequence of it, though, is pretty significant. So the second portion of this st proposed statute provides that if a law enforcement officer witnesses, witnesses wrongdoing committed by another law enforcement officer, or they have a good faith belief that they uh, have that another officer has committed wrongdoing, they shall report that in accordance with their agency's policies and procedures. If you fail to do that, you'll be subject to disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer. In addition to that, though, it shall be the duty of all law enforcement officers to cooperate fully with persons who are assigned to conduct investigation. So that would be, you know, a detective. It's a use of force case. It might be your sergeant. If it's a if it's a shooting, uh, it might be, if you are involved in a shooting, uh, it might be a detective who's assigned. It might be a detective from another agency, state police, whatever. Um, if it's an internal matter, it might be, again, internal affairs in your agency. All law enforcement officers have to truthfully answer questions directed to them by, the, by, a, by an investigator, a supervisor, or commander. So if your sergeant asks you a question, if, a, in, if an internal affairs investigator asks you a question, if a detective asks you a question, you shall answer those questions truthfully, and you shall give all pertinent information which you may have knowledge which is related to the investigation. 
So in other words, there is no right to remain silent. Now, this is important because um, the consequence for it, for, for, failing to, for, for failing to disclose everything that you know, for failing to disclose all this, is, again, disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer, right? So there's not criminal consequences, but there are economic consequences, disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer. Now, we've had, and we talked about it in another episode, the Garrity case, right? And so you might remember uh, that we talked about the, the basic rules about Garrity, what it is. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a case that's been around since the 1960s. And it's a case that concerns what happens when someone is uh, facing not a criminal consequence for exercising their right to remain silent, but instead an economic consequence for exercising their right to remain silent. Now, I'm not going to completely review uh, that episode. If you want to go back and listen to it, um, you know, we, we talked about that episode in depth. But the core issue is um, that, you know, in Virginia law, statements by a law enforcement officer during, during internal investigation right now may be admissible so long as there wasn't a threat of economic consequences. If your sergeant asks you, you know, hey, um, how is your detail going at that uh, apartment complex where you're working, you know, where you're working the extra duty detail, and you say, hey, it's working fine, and in fact, it's not working fine, you've been double dipping, or you're not working the time, you're getting paid, but you're not working, or whatever. Um, and that's obviously a criminal issue, right? But if you make the statement, oh, it's fine, it's a good job, I'm working my hours, don't worry about it, that statement that you made, sort of uh, lying about the criminal offense you made, that's going to be admissible against you in a, in a future criminal trial because there was no compulsion. There was no statement, if you don't answer this question, there's going to be con employment consequences for you. But sometimes a police department makes a decision, we're going to force an officer to make a statement uh, and we're going to tell them if they don't make the statement, they're going to be disciplined. And when they do, that's when the police department reads what's considered what's called a Garrity waiver, right? You might have heard of this, right? And this is a statement where they say, "Look, we're forcing you to talk," and because of that, uh, there isn't this statement isn't going to be used against you in a court of law because we recognize that we're uh, we're compelling you to make this statement, and therefore it's not going to be admissible. So understand that what you, what we're forcing you to do is to tell us the answer to these questions or give you all your information. We recognize that we're giving up the ability to use these statements in court, but we're willing to do that because we need to get answers to these statements, right? So it's kind of like a, a, a use immunity uh, kind of thing. That's the way the law is right now. So a police department at least has a choice, but most of the time people's statements can be admissible in a trial later on down the road. But this statute would change that. This statute would essentially compel law enforcement officers to make statements uh, in any situation, uh, always have to disclose information, and therefore essentially provide use immunity for virtually anything that you would say to a supervisor, to a lieutenant, to a detective in a use of force investigation, to a sergeant in a use of force investigation, or a sergeant who's asking you about your extra details, uh, internal affairs, and so on. Um, again, I don't, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what the patron here is thinking. I never haven't talked to the patron, haven't heard anything about the patron said, but um, it is interesting. I mean, the patron's not an attorney and so may not recognize that they've created essentially use immunity for all law enforcement statements collected by sergeants and lieutenants and so on. Um, but it is interesting. So uh, this bill um, was uh, printed and filed on uh, Monday, January 11th. 
already on Wednesday, January 13th. It came up before the subcommittee on public safety, uh, and that's the chance for the public to be heard openly. Um, so it, it, it arrived on Monday. It was announced on Monday, and already on Wednesday, that was your chance. Well, really Tuesday, that was because you had to sign up by Tuesday to get heard, uh, I think. Um, so you really had 24 hours to get heard on this, and they gave you, I don't know if they gave you a minute or two minutes or how it works now on the video conference to make your statement. Um, it was voted on, it was reported five to two out of the public, public safety subcommittee. It then went to the full committee the next day uh, on um, January the 15th on, on Friday. I'm sorry, so uh, let's see here. It went to the full committee, I'm sorry. So the, I'm sorry, it was, it was assigned to the public safety committee on Wednesday. Thursday is when it got heard by the subcommittee reported five to two, and then on Friday, January 15th, that's when it reported from public safety, 15 to six. So it's going to the full house floor um, based on the vote. It you know, wouldn't surprise me if the house uh, voted in favor of the bill. Um, at this point, it doesn't appear to be any kind of real dissent or real any kind, there's no amendments to the bill. So the next time uh, that it will come up for any real debate will be in the Senate. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if the Senate's aware of it or, you know, notices the problems or what happens. Another bill that's really significant and would bring a lot of changes in Virginia would be House Bill 2004. This is Delegate Hearst's bill on Freedom of Information Act. And it's a bill that um, came out of the FOIA Council. There was a huge amount of debate about this because it really does significantly change the way FOIA works in Virginia. Um, there was discussion about limiting these changes, but ultimately Delegate Hearst proposed a pretty sweeping change to FOIA. And what it says is essentially that criminal, you know, right now criminal investigative files uh, are not are very protected by FOIA. This would flip that around and essentially provide that people could, through FOIA, request criminal investigative files, including complaints, court orders, memoranda, notes, incident reports, um, files in uh, RMS systems, uh, crime scene diagrams, any kind of diagram, presumably a SANE report, a diagram that was made of a victim in a sexual assault report, uh, maps, photographs, if you're taking crime scene photographs, uh, correspondence, police reports, emails that you might have sent. So correspondence counts, so emails to the prosecutor, emails to the victim, emails from the victim, um, emails to the victim's family, witness statements, um, including, you know, potentially witnesses who didn't know their statements were going to be made public. Um, uh, and that might be a recorded statement if you have taken a recorded statement from a witness. Evidence, um, uh, any kind of evidence that you've collected, all of that information uh, is subject to FOIA now as long as the in, as long as the proceeding isn't ongoing. So uh, you know if a if you get a conviction in a case, it's a rape case, it's a sexual assault case, it's a child sexual assault case, um, it's a violent crime, it's a murder. Now all that information can be is basically FOIAble, uh, and it's it could you could. Go. To, you could say uh, there are some exceptions here, but if you uh, invoke one of the exceptions and say, for example, um, this is going to interfere with an ongoing investigation, or it's going to be an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy, like it's a victim's um, sexual assault forensic report, or it's going to disclose a confidential source, or um, it's going to disclose an investigative technique or procedure or endanger someone's life or safety. If a court disagrees with you about that, you end up having to pay a fine 
for that. Um, so a prosecutor or your local locality, whatever, would have to pay a fine uh, for not producing that. And again, there's no uh, there's no limitation based on the amount of information. So, you know, having been involved in a pretty big case a few years ago, I can recall that we had two terabytes of data uh, in that case with pictures and witness reports and videos and, um, you know, uh, all kinds of information collected, maps and, uh, you know, video surveillance from areas and witness statements, criminal records, criminal histories and all that kind of stuff, um, uh, forensic reports. Um, you know, it was, it was a huge amount of information and that information would now here be all foyable and could be turned over and basically made public by, you know, someone interested, a blogger, a news organization, um, you know, somebody who's friends with a defendant who wants the information and wants to out all the witnesses who um, testified against him or provided information against him. All that information would be foyable uh, under this proposal. So it's a pretty big change. And the status of this would be, Status of this, it was it was it was uh, announced on Monday, proposed on Monday, the eleventh, and right now it's going to the Committee on General Laws in the House. Again, pretty significant change, something to keep definitely keep your eyes on. Um, another bill that has come back is uh, the attempt to uh, reduce the penalty for assault on a law enforcement officer. So you might remember that. Um, you know, this was this is a bill that's already been uh, was a subject of, of a special session effort. Now, and and the special session effort essentially, for lack of a better word, imploded. In other words, there was a Senate effort, there was a House effort. Both of them had different efforts to make changes. Neither of them really could agree with each other, and so ultimately, not a really significant change came out. Although there were a lot of proposals to significantly change the assault and law enforcement officer statute. Here, this session. Uh, Senate Bill 1306, which is proposed by Delegate, excuse me, by Senator Morrissey, would essentially provide that an assault and battery on law enforcement officer wouldn't be a felony unless it resulted in a bodily injury. Now, the code section that's proposed doesn't define bodily injury, but in general, the law defines bodily injury as any bodily hurt whatsoever. So, um, you know, you think about unlawful wounding or malicious wounding, right? That's the kind of bodily injury that we're talking about. Now, what's interesting about this is it says bodily injury, and so does unlawful wounding and, and malicious wounding talk about unlawful wounding so, uh, in bodily injury. So it's interesting here that if you commit an assault and battery resulting in a bodily injury against a normal citizen, that's malicious wounding, which is obviously punishable by you know, potentially decades in penitentiary, if you commit an assault and battery resulting in a bodily injury against a law enforcement officer, it's a class six felony, which is a maximum penalty of five years in the penitentiary. Now, that's a little bit of oversimplification. Unlawful wounding requires a little bit more intent um, than an assault and battery resulting in bodily injury. But, you know, again, if you have an assault, if you have somebody who beats someone to the point where they do have a bodily injury, a lot of those, almost all of those instances are going to be unlawful woundings. Um, and an unlawful wounding of a law enforcement officer is punished by more penalty. But in any event, um, this proposal also eliminates the mandatory minimum sentence for assault and battery on a law enforcement officer. Now, here the senator has removed that line, so it would be a classics felony. There would no longer be a mandatory minimum six months. The senator has advocated before for the elimination of mandatory minimums, and in fact, there is a bill pending, as I understand it, to eliminate all mandatory minimums in Virginia 
with some exceptions. Um, and so it's not clear what's going to happen with that. Um, Senator Morrissey is also carrying one of the legalization of marijuana bills. And Senator Morrissey's proposal for the legalization of marijuana contains a lot of mandatory minimums. So it's still not 100% clear what's going to happen to mandatory minimums in this session, but that's not what today's podcast is about. Um, interestingly, this proposal also allows for two more things. One is the court could enter a deferred disposition with the agreement of the Commonwealth and the Defense under a new code section that was enacted in the special session, which is 19.2303.6, and also allows a that the um, the court to issue a deferred disposition without the consent of the commonwealth to a defendant who has an autism spectrum disorder or an intellectual disability as defined under the code um, if their conduct uh, was caused by or had it was a direct result of their autism or their intellectual disability um, in addition to that the court could uh, the, the court or the jury could find a person guilty of simple assault or simple assault and battery and class one misdemeanor again if their degree of culpability is slight, not just because of autism but because of some diminished physical capacity or some diminished mental capacity, or if there's no bodily injury. Um, so, in, in here the uh, the court or the jury could always basically if they wanted to find a person guilty of a misdemeanor assault and not a felony assault, if they wanted to, they would be given the option um, in a, in a case uh, of assault on a law enforcement officer. So that's another um, uh, code section that's been proposed for the 2021 session. Right now it is uh, referred to the judiciary committee, uh, which is the old Senate courts of justice committee. They now call the commission, the judiciary um, that was proposed on Tuesday and remains to be seen how that goes. So we'll keep track of all these bills. There's a lot of really interesting bills uh, this year. I've only touched on a few of them, um, but I definitely encourage you to keep your eye out uh, for a lot of legislation in this session. It, it is what they call a short session, but we've been told to expect that it's not you know short as in a 30-day session. In recent history, there's never been a short session, 30-day session that's actually lasted 30 days. They've all lasted much longer. Um, but there's a budget bill that, to be done as well, and there's a lot of budget work to be done this year, uh, and a lot of, um, you know, with COVID-19 and sorts of issues like that, um, the budget itself is going to be somewhat controversial. So um, we'll see what happens. We'll see how long the session lasts. We don't know. We'll see how the session goes. We don't know how that's going to go. Keep your eyes peeled. Uh, stay safe out there. Take care of each other. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Stay safe and don't get captured.